The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Okay, uh, so tonight is going to be uh, a, maybe a little bit different than where we've been in the past. You know, over the last, um, well, it's been like six years now. So <laughs> we've been going through the Old Testament. Uh, it is, we have gone, I mean, I commend you for making it this far. Uh, we have gone almost literally story by story through the Old Testament and attempted at least to put everything in chronological order as we rehearse the story of what has taken place over a thousand plus years of Old Testament history. That took us from Abraham, I mean really we started with Adam and Eve and creation and all of that, but but really, Abraham, we did, you know, early 2000s B.C., uh, all the way up to now where we are, 400 B.C., and now we're entering into something of uncharted territory because there's not really a Bible verse that we can go to for the, the amount of information that we're about to cover, okay? So just know that over the next, it's going to be quicker than you probably think it is, but Several weeks, we're going to be looking at the time period between the Old Testament's close and the New Testament's open, okay? So that is where the uncharted territory comes from, because you're, when we normally, in our packet, you have all the Bible verses that we're going to talk about that night and where all this stuff comes from as we try to explain it, or I try to explain it. But we don't have that really a lot in the next coming weeks. So over the, over the coming weeks, we're going to look at some, some more history, all right? But he, here's the goal. I don't want this to just be a history lesson, all right, where we just talk about, you know, Alexander the Great and go on long details about him. But I really want us to think about, first of all, how the Old Testament has come to a close and what God is about to do in the New Testament, Okay? The framework that I want you to work through in your mind as we look at history is to understand we don't interpret history the same way as secular historians look at history. So a, a secular historian will look back at the pages of the history book and go, well, these are the events that took place. But we look at it as these are the events that the sovereign Lord has directed to take place. Okay? That's, that's the difference. All right? So our history has a little bit of a different spin to it than most other histories, all right? But it is the same events. And so the, the benefit that we have in being in the church is that as we look at these events, we are now 2,000 plus years removed from them, 2,500 years in some cases removed from these events. So we get to look back at them and say, look at what happened and tell me that was a coincidence, Right? We get to look back at it and say, here are all the things that just happened to fit together at, that paved the way for the gospel message to uniquely go out in that time and that place. All right? So that's the goal, is that each week we would be looking at it and saying, this is what was taking place, and we speculate this is probably the reason why those things took place. But I also want you to think about what it was like for the people in that time and place that any one person is sitting through they're not sitting through 400 years of preparation so the old testament closes 400 bc 
We get the New Testament opening somewhere around 4 B.C. or something like that. So let's say 400 years of history that no one person is sitting through. They sit through at most 80 years of it. So they get a little window that's about that wide and a glimpse as to what God is doing. And at any point in their little window, they might see some great advancements and they might see nothing at all. But we get the benefit of looking at it as a whole and saying, this is what God was actually doing in the story, right? So that should impact the window that you and I are looking through right now. It should, right? We are looking through a window that is, what, you know, 90 years long if we're, if we're really lucky, right? If we're, if, if we're really, you know, if, if God smiles on us and gives us a life that's 90 years long, we get a 90-year window to look through, and that's it. And any one moment in that window, it, look, it might look really cloudy and terrible, or it might look bright and sunny and great, but, but at most, it's this little window, and we, we can't see the bigger picture. But what would it be like if you could zoom out for just a second, and God were to give you a 400-year look at what he was doing? What would, what would you be thinking at that point about your tiny little sliver of life? So that's what we get the ability to do in history. That's why it's beneficial, and I think it's helpful to study. So, let's take a look, just at a review of what we talked about last time. Uh, Remember, the final source of Old Testament historical information is the prophet Malachi. So, at the open of the book of Malachi, the Lord himself is addressing the people, and he declares to them from the outset of the book his unfailing unaltered and continuous love. So at the beginning of Malachi, he, remember, he doubles down on his covenant that he made with them. I am, I'm, st- I'm still committed to you. Even though you're wandering and you're way out here and you're doing all this kind of stuff, I have still made a promise and I'm still committed to you. And he, he doubles down on that. Now, Israel's expectations of a glorious renewal of their national life after the return from exile has been, uh, shall we say, disappointed The promised kingdom of the Messiah had still not dawned. Israel as a nation was not delivered and glorified. They still remained under Persian rule and were suffering from pests and plagues. So Israel might have thought, you know, hey, we're done with Babylon. 538 B.C. We're done with Babylon. The Persians came in and conquered. And we're restored back to the land. And we're going to rebuild the temple. And it's, it's, it's business as usual. And then they get there, and they got this piddling little building with half a roof that they called a temple, and it did not match in any way what Solomon had built before. And there's not that many people, honestly, in the city of Jerusalem now. It's not nearly what, it's not the bustling community that it was. Everything about their life is completely disappointed. All their expectations are completely let down. What they thought was going to happen was, Boom, out of Babylon, here comes the Messiah. Where is he? Where's the, where's the kingdom? Where is it? Nowhere, apparently. So all of that has, all their hopes have been dashed, and now they're beginning to wander to and fro. So at the end of the prophecy of Malachi, remember this is the, it's the last book in, the, in our English Bibles in the Old Testament, Malachi is. That wasn't the last book in like a Hebrew Old Testament, like a Hebrew Bible, it wouldn't be the last book. But for us, they're kind of arranged loosely, chronologically, to some extent. And so Malachi ends 
where the chronology of the Old Testament ends. And so it closes, and at the end of Malachi's prophecy, there's this promise. It's sort of like, uh, I promise the sun is going to rise again. I know it's setting, but the sun is going to rise again. And, and the promise there is that those who genuinely fear the Lord will eventually be separated from those who only pretend to serve the Lord. So there is a day of the Lord that is promised in Malachi that's coming where he is going to separate, there's going to be a great a, kind of a shaking loose of the people of Israel and all those clingers on who carry the name of Israel but don't actually carry the faith of Israel, they're going to be shook loose. They're going to be sorted out. And the ones who actually fear the Lord are going to rise to the surface. And he, what he, he says is that, that when that day comes, you're going to know it because the prophet Elijah is going to come to inaugurate that day. He's going to come right before the Messiah comes. Well, we find out in the New Testament that here comes this man named John the Baptist who's wearing the same garb of Elijah. He's wearing the camel hair, and he's wearing the belt, and the, he's got crazy hair, and he's eating locusts and honey, and he's, he's emulating the person of Elijah. And he begins his ministry of preparing the hearts of the people of Israel to turn them to and prepare them for the coming of Christ. And then we hear later on the apostles ask Jesus, or the disciples then, ask Jesus, hey, why did everybody say that Elijah's coming first before, you, before the Messiah comes, if you're really the Messiah? And Jesus says, he does. John the Baptist was him. So when we see the prophecy in Malachi, the explanation Jesus gives us is it's not literally Elijah coming back or returning from the sky or something like that. What it is, is John the Baptist coming in the spirit and nature of Elijah, preaching like Elijah to a lost generation who kind of hates him, to be honest, and he's preaching, he's stealing his face against the winds of the culture, and he's preaching into it. So he has the spirit of Elijah upon him like that. And so he prepares the way of the people uh, of Israel for the coming of, of the Messiah. So we begin now this transition out of the book of Malachi and into this kind of weird period where all of the things that take place from now and for the next few weeks as we uncover them, they're all going to prepare you for the New Testament. Right now, you know who the Pharisees and the Sadducees are, right? They're the bad guys, right? That's what they are to you, is the bad guys. Because that's the only context we ever get of them in the New Testament. But what we will find out is that they came about for very good reasons. And, they're, 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 and once you understand the reasons that they came about, it will help you understand the New Testament a lot more. All right, by understanding how these people and places came to be. Okay, more than 1,500 years before the Old Testament prophet Malachi, the Lord had made three promises to Abram. One, he said, I will make you into a great nation. Two, I will give you descendants in this land. I will give your descendants this land. And three, all nations will be blessed through you. Um, and so basically the, the people will be brought back to this land and they will progress and they will grow and they will be fruitful and they will multiply and God was going to do this for Abram and for his family. Now, I think it's really helpful 
to hear what Martin Luther says about that promise in Genesis 12. Whatever will be achieved in the church until the end of the world, and whatever has been achieved in it until now, has been achieved and will be achieved by virtue of this promise, meaning the promise made to Abram, which endures and is in force to this day. Okay, God says, I will make of you a great nation. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. What we come to see in the New Testament is that there is one person that the, that promise of blessing to the world and who is a child of Abraham, there's one person who that, that promise flows through, and that is Jesus Christ. So God's intention in giving Abraham that, that promise is to say, I'm going to give you a child. But that child is not going to be the end of the line. That child is going to be but the beginning of what he's going to do through Abraham's offspring. What eventually will come through Abraham's offspring is Jesus, who will bless the entire world. And what, what God promises to Abraham is through you all the nations of the earth we bless. And he says, I will bless those who bless you and those who curse you I will curse. And that's exactly what happens in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Those associated with Christ by faith are blessed. Those who disassociate from Christ by lack of faith are cursed, reap the curse in the end. That is essentially what Martin Luther is getting at here is that that promise is the center of all the work in the rest of the Old and New Testament. Okay? That's what we see coming about. So everything that will be accomplished in and through God's people now until the end of time is based on the initial promise that he made. So when we close the book of Malachi, it's not as though God has faltered on the promise that he's made, though that's what it feels like to those people at that time. So, tracking with me so far? We good? Okay. So as the Old Testament draws to a close, the future looks pretty grim for those three promises. The once great nation under King David and King Solomon was reduced to a few thousand people. Ten of Israel's twelve tribes had been exiled from the land where they were intermixed with other conquered peoples. Remember, that was the Assyrian army. It had come in and taken them and had conquered them and spread them out and it had intermixed them with other peoples, which is a big no-no in, in, for Israel. Okay, And so they're, they're intermixed. So that's bad. And, and, had, and obviously had conquered them. And eventually they all lost their identity. The boundaries of the promised land, which were, I mean, as far north as where Syria is now, as far south as Close to e getting close to Egypt or the UAE, where the UAE is now, has now just been reduced to a tiny little area around Jerusalem. Talk about a massive amount of shrink. I mean, the promised land was probably the size of New Jersey initially, maybe a little bit bigger than New Jersey, and now it's the size of Trenton, right? If that. Tiny little dot. I know you're familiar with New Jersey demographics and sizes and things like that. You know. Trent, New Jersey. Yeah, it's the capital of New Jersey. Okay, yeah, so there you go. Okay, well, that shows you what I know, all right? I mean, like, you know, okay, how about Tuscaloosa, all right? Northport, all right? No, it's, 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 keep, keep going? Okay, well, there you go. Yeah, it should, all right. 
Ah, oh, it's tough dealing with the peanut gallery. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so in other words, as the Old Testament comes to a close, what you expect is going to happen in Genesis with the promise to Abraham is, I mean, amazing things. And the book comes to a close, and God, from a human perspective, is silent for 400 years. And that's how it ends. With nothing. The people are reduced to, I mean, something tiny. So you can just, just imagine where you would be with that being your heritage and your expectation. You have feasts and festivals that are all centered around the coming of the Messiah that are centered around God saving His people through the Red Sea, brings the seas back on Pharaoh and his army, leads us through the desert with a pillar of fire and a cloud, and he has all these m- magical wonders and things like that that are happening to the, our forefathers. And where is he now? For 400 years, we don't even get a prophet. Not one person to come in and explain what's happening to us. And as we'll see, there are some tragic things that happen to Israel over these next 400 years. So you can imagine how the people feel when Malachi, that's it. We get another promise. Believe me, I'm doing it. Well, how how much longer can we believe that you're actually doing it? Right? That's kind of how it feels, hopefully. Or I think we get the idea. So the Persian Empire, at the end of Malachi, well, yeah, at the end of Malachi, continues to rule over Judea um, and does so for another 75 years after the close of Malachi. So in total, the, the reign of the Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, is 538 B.C. to 334 B.C. So that that's, gives you an idea Malachi ends somewhere around 400 B.C., so another number of years, so it could be 415 B.C. or so, but the point is another 75 or so years after the close of the Old Testament, the Persian Empire continues to reign. Okay, well, then we get to 334, and things begin to change. In about 331 B.C., of course, Alexander the Great has risen up in Greece, Here's what's going to happen. Over the next few years, you're going to see the kingdoms that we're all talking about, that we were concerned with throughout the Old Testament, all being out east, right? Babylon is out east of the Promised Land. Assyria, north and east. Uh, all the, uh, Syria is kind of north into the east. Uh, all those areas of concern that were out east are now all going to shift really to the west and to the north. So now we're talking about Greece, and we're going to be eventually talking about Rome, and we're talking about the Seleucids, and we're talking about a diff- bunch of different kingdoms that are going to come in and try to, make, try to do, do something with this land. Remember also that we had said they took possession of this land, which was the most prime real estate in all the world at the time that they took part in it, right? So the children of Israel back in Moses' day were led out of Egypt and out of slavery. They were led through the wilderness and they walked into Times Square and took possession of it. Slaves, after 40 years, took possession 
of prime real estate in the world. Real estate everybody in the world wanted. Okay? They just took possession of it. All right? You can call that luck if you want to, but it sounds like providence. Okay. Now, because Israel is weakened and they don't have control of that territory anymore or, or a really good grasp on it, what do you think is going to happen? Well, it's not as though that, that property has gone down in value. It's only gone up as the world has grown in population. So now, the area where Israel dwells is going to be fought over with every fiber of everyone's being. Whoever is the top dog in the world is coming in to take over. So, Alexander the Great is that person. He's the commander of the Greek armies. He came to, uh, he, he came to Palestine or the Palestinian area in 331 B.C. Now, most all of the cities are looking at the Greek Empire and they're going, well, who's going to match Alexander the Great? He's commanding the armies of Greece and he's, uh, there's nobody that can fight with Greece at this point. And so everybody is just bowing down to him and just sending him tribute. They're just like, before he even walks into their city, they're just like, here, just take it. It's fine. We know you could kill us and let's just save everybody the bloodshed. All right? So... Kind of shrewd move, maybe. I don't know, if you don't want to fight. And so they're doing that, except for uh, a couple of areas, Tyre and Gaza. Now, you're familiar with Gaza because you know the Gaza Strip, but I'm going to show you a map of it in just a second. Um, But Tyre is a little bit north of the Promised Land. They're pushing back against Alexander. So what does he do? He comes in, and he takes over Tyre and Gaza. Now, while he's there in Palestine, might as well go take Jerusalem too, right? So now, Tyre and Gaza are all paying tribute to Alexander the Great because they got ran over like a Mack truck over a Coke can, okay? Just demolished, okay? They're all paying him tribute. So he turns his attention to Jerusalem, and everyone's in a panic because, oh no, he's coming for piddling little Israel, right? Okay, pause right there. Here's a map. All right. Shannon loves the maps, so I had to throw one in there. This is just for Shannon. Notice down here the key is the purple equals Macedonia. We'll say Greece for now. Uh, Macedonia at 336. But the green represents Alexander's empire just 13 years later. So that is what he took over. And that is what he grew it to. Like this. What you find in history is, first of all, big armies tend to think a lot of themselves. So they think they can't be toppled. Just word to the wise, okay, for what it's worth. Two, people who are very smart militarily can take small armies and conquer. So what Alexander lacked in size of military, he had in brains in terms of how to conquer. So there are notable conquerors throughout the years, and they all started with something really small. Small, Okay, so he started with this, grew it to this. What's crazy is Alexander only lived to be like 33 years old. So he did all of that in 13 years, right? And then he died, and it was over. So yeah, so he died in 323, I believe it was. All right, 
So you notice right here is Palestine. This is where Jerusalem is. So he comes into Tyre up here. He goes down. The Gaza Strip runs right along the Mediterranean Sea. So you can see why people in Gaza and Tyre are pushing back against Alexander's rule because they're making all their money off the sea. Alexander is over here in Greece, and he wants to make his money off the Mediterranean Sea, and so he's got to conquer everybody in here so that he basically owns the whole Mediterranean Sea. Whoever owns the water is the, is the ruler. That's still the case today. But uh, Okay, so, um, so anyway, this is what happens. Okay, so he turns his attention to Jerusalem. And this is where all of Jerusalem starts to get into a panic. And so a high priest, the high priest at the time, his name is, uh, I'm going to try it, Yadua. <laughs> all right, maybe. Uh, I don't, there's no Hebrew that I can go to, to to say this is how it's pronounced, at least that I know of. So that's what we're going with now. Um, he was frightened that Alexander was coming. And so... What he decided to do was tell everybody in the city of Jerusalem, which, mind you, is only a few thousand people. They don't have an army to resist Alexander. Few thousand people to say, we're going to put on, we're going to put, we're going to dress all in white. All right? Like, you've heard of waving the white flag? We're going to be just one big white flag. All right? <laughs> Something like that. Basically, to commemorate Alexander's army, that was kind of a Greek, a Greek garb, so they're basically kind of almost like paying tribute to him already. He, we're going to meet him before he ever gets to the city gate, and we're going to uh, tell him how much we love him, and how much we care for him, and how awesome he is, and then we're going to bring him in, and we're going to show him how we worship the one true and living God, and how we make sacrifices to him. We're going to lead him to make a sacrifice to the one true and living God. We're going to wine him and dine him. We're going to care for him, and then we're going to petition that he not kill us, and that we not have to pay tribute to him if we, if we could, and that we just we don't have to worship the Greek gods that we go ahead and get to worship Yahweh. And Alexander lets them. They take him to the book of Daniel and they show him the predictions in the book of Daniel that an army was going to come in and they say, look, this is the Greek army. We knew you guys were coming. Alexander was so impressed that he said, wow, you know what? I like what you guys got going here. You keep going. Yes. Now, you might say, how is a conqueror like Alexander the Great, going to walk into Jerusalem and just let these people keep their own religion and get to refuse the Greek pantheon, how is he going to let them continue to make sacrifices and not have to pay tribute to him? Well, you might say, Jerusalem was pretty smart. Or you might say, they were pretty lucky. Or you might say, God is preserving the worship of his name amongst his people. And he turns the king's heart whichever way he wants. What is the verse? There's the, many are the plans of men. The king's heart is stream in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whichever way he wants. So you can take whichever option you'd like. Here's the way I'm going to see it. Is that God is preserving the worship of his name amongst his people even though they are small. Right? He is doing that here 
in letting Alexander turn a blind eye to it. As a further evidence of that, years prior, Alexander, this is the way uh, Josephus, who is a historian, records it, Alexander reports that he had a dream. And in his dream, this was before he conquered Persia, in his dream, somebody came to him dressed in all white, wearing a bright purple linen with a hat on that said, take Persia, it's yours. And he did, and he conquered Persia. When he walked to the gates of Jerusalem, he saw the priest standing there dressed in the exact same outfit that he saw in his dream 13 years prior. And so he records, Alexander does, or Josephus through Alexander records that that's why Alexander let him do it. So, it's your choice. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's a lot of coincidences, James, if it's not the fingerprints of God. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it takes more faith to believe it's a coincidence, right? Uh, okay. So, pretty interesting. All right. So, uh, such a greeting, no doubt, appealed to Alexander's ego, and in turn, Alexander granted the Jews in Judea the right to follow their own laws and be exempted from paying tribute to him. He further invited Jews to enlist in his army and promised that they could retain their own customs. And some of them did. Some of them joined him in his army. But the point is, the worship of the one true and living God did not get watered down by polytheism, but it, it maintained worship at least to some extent there in Jerusalem. All right. Alexander himself only lived on the, in the world for just a short time. I think it was 33 years in total, and he only reigned from 334 to 323. So you can see this a, a precious short time that he was actually on the scene. But his impact in world history is incredibly profound. Obviously, there's art, there's architecture. All of those things are true. But ultimately, language itself was one of the biggest things that happened in Alexander's tenure. The Greeks sought not only military victory and political expansion and economic gain, but were also intent on transmitting their way of life to non-Greek, what they would call barbarians. So in other words, they, did it on the, uh, they took the slow route, but they saw everybody else as completely inferior to them, and if you only had a culture like ours, you would be better and more civilized. And so their goal was to really slowly convert you or indoctrinate you into their way of thinking and their way of life. And so that influenced art, architecture, all kinds of things. I'm going to tell you why that's important in just a minute. This process that they went through was called Hellenization. Hellenization. They sought to Hellenize the, 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 whole, the entire world, everything that was under their thumb. And that was not a sudden imposition on Greek, uh, of Greek culture on native peoples, but a centuries-long endeavor that the Greeks took. And they, they didn't typically force their way in. It was a lot of uh, the aristocracy that preferred uh, the Greek way of life and thought of it as a more civilized way uh, of living. And so they adopted this. But here's why all of that is tremendously important. Why, I will tell you, why Alexander's, you, you say, like, how did he do all that, right? In, what, what was it, uh, 11 years, basically, of, of active military campaigns? He did all of that. Well, the thing that he brought by conquering all these people was a common language. That was the biggest thing that was ever brought to the world at the time. And that language is called Koine Greek, or Koine means common. 
So it was common Greek or Koine Greek. Um, you can spell it K-O-I-N-E, Greek, or common Greek. Um, and that language, because of the, the aristocracy in all the places that were conquered, and because the Greek way of life was seen as more progressive, maybe more intelligent, a more sophisticated way of living, it enticed the rest of the world not only to become more Greek, but also to adopt their language. So the common language that began to be traded around became Greek. Now, this is one of the few times, the first times, let's say, not the first, but one of the first times in human history that a language like this has become so pervasive and, and cultural that it was adopted by all of the people that you know, were, were conquered. So to the point where you have an entire civilization in Jerusalem that is taken off to Babylon, and yet they don't become Babylonian in their language, really. They have some writings in Aramaic, which is probably at the closest they could get, but really, they still continue to have something of their own language and their own culture as they live inside, um, inside Babylon. That was them being taken out of their land. So you can imagine how hard that is. Now they're in their land. They're trying to relearn their old customs and language. Here comes Alexander, and everywhere he goes, the people that he conquers begin to adopt the Greek language. Now, what language was the New Testament written in? Koine Greek. So this will become the language of the New Testament. And it's due, in large part, to Alexander's military might. How was he able to do that in 11 years? Well, he could be a phenom. Or, he could be blessed by God for this purpose. But I want you to think about that for just a second. 11 years, this tiny little window of 11 years. His conquering of these lands was not, hey, can we take your land? You know what? Sure. It was bloody battles. People died. It was tragic and it was awful and it was horrible wars that Alexander fought. He was a ruthless military leader. But was there a purpose that he served in God's sovereign plan? Absolutely there was. Now, if you look at the 11 years of his reign, and you were only living during that time, and maybe you were the one at the tip of the spear of his military conquest, wouldn't you say, this man is wicked and evil? Well, the Bible would say, he probably was. Does that mean that God doesn't utilize even those things for the accomplishment of his purposes in the long run? It was very obvious if you look at history, he did. Because establishing Koine Greek as a common language that could be traded amongst the rest of the people of the world led to the spread of the gospel in that language. So I would say, yeah, not only does it lead to the spread of the gospel, it leads to the nation's coming to worship the one true and living God. Because they weren't going to do it in Hebrew. So if you think about God going to the world, what did He do first over a long period of time? Established a common language. It's 
pivotal to the spread of the gospel in history. Um, so, I think first we can recognize, oh, let me back up because that was what I was going to say. First, we, uh, we, we have to recognize a few things that God is doing in regards to his promise there at the end of Malachi. The first thing that he's doing is obviously uh, establishing that common language for the gospel to go forth. The second thing that we can recognize is that, is that God's providence in allowing the Jewish people to maintain fealty to Yahweh while other conquered peoples were made to worship the Greek pantheon in addition to paying tribute. That the, the Hebrew people, the, you know, Israel w- was able to continue to worship Yahweh. That is also something we can see in God's providence that he's, that he's doing. Finally, perhaps the, Hel- and this is maybe some speculation on my part, perhaps the Hellenization of the Jews which is there progressively becoming more Greek and speaking Greek and things like that, led to having more in common, culturally speaking, with the rest of the world than the Jewish religion would have otherwise allowed. So this might have made Gentile inclusion into God's people much more palatable as they begin to be able to converse with the rest of the world, be able to trade with the rest of the world, as they begin to understand the way the rest of the world operates and things like that that happens through Hellenization. So understanding what, a, what Hellenized people are is people that have adopted Greek language and Greek culture helps you then understand part of the New Testament. Remember the, the apostles are preaching in Acts 6 and the Hellenists, the, Jew, the Jewish widows, the widows who are Jewish who have come now to Christ but who speak Greek have a problem. They have been Hellenized. They, have, they adopt the Greek culture. Peter is here speaking in Hebrew to the, rest, to the rest of the people in Jerusalem. And their church is this mixed race, basically, of people who speak different languages, who trade in different languages. And they're going, we are left out of the daily distribution because we don't speak the language that you speak. Right? And so there is a, a, essentially a, a, a kind of a race problem that's going on inside the church there in Jerusalem where they're not being... Uh, the Hellenized Jews are not being uh, taken into the table and being given the daily distribution of bread. And so this, the, the creation of deacons is to help serve the people in the church body. Um, so it helps us to kind of be able to process that. But how, well, how do we even think about that in terms of our own? Like h- How I started, obviously, was you, the window of your life is whatever it is, however long God leaves you on this earth, maybe some 90 years, maybe some 60 years, maybe some somewhere in between, or maybe some even a lot shorter, maybe a lot longer. But I think what we can see as we see history, uh, you know, evolve and history take its turns and dips and all those kinds of things is that God takes a long view. So God makes a promise in Malachi. And what any one person sees is, well, he's slow to fulfill that promise. Where is he? He's not coming back. I don't see in anywhere in my life where I see evidence of the Messiah coming. But what, what, what does Alexander the Great have to do with God's promise of bringing in the Messiah? But now if you're to zoom out and you're to look at 400 years of human history, you can see God establishing a common language in the world, which takes 400 years. Eventually he's going to bring in the Romans who are going to be awful and horrible people, but they're also going to build a ton of roads, which is going to make it very easy to travel from one place to another. Right? 
He's going to bring in the Seleucids, and they're going to do some awful things in Israel. But it's going to raise up the chief antagonists for the Messiah who are going to lead to his crucifixion. In any one moment in history, you can't see at all what God is doing. And so what does that actually say then about your life and my life? I tend to look at one singular day. And that day, if it goes good, I'm living on it for about 30 minutes. If it goes bad, I'm living on it for about 30 weeks. And I'm thinking, well, it's never going to get better than this. I mean, this is it, right? This is how it goes, you know? Woe is me. I'm lost, and, and this is what God thinks of me. He's just, you know, he's left me out here to die, and that's just it. But what would we say about our life if we could zoom out and look at it as a whole? Maybe see it how God sees it. Look at your sanctification, your growth in Christ, your being conformed into the image of Christ, your, your growing more to trust Him over time. If you could look at that from the time you were 10, 8, 12, 15, whenever you got in the waters of baptism, all the way up to 80, 85, 90. What would you say then? What if you could zoom out even further and you could see you in eternity worshiping around the throne of Christ with brothers and sisters that you grew up with, that you love, who are also born-again believers? What would you say then? Would you say, and if you saw that your time around the throne with Christ is deeply connected to all of those pitfalls, that you wouldn't be there without that. All of those mountaintop experiences, that you wouldn't be there without that. And the fall that took place in between those two things, you wouldn't be there without that. What if you could see how God was using all of those things, good and bad, to accomplish that purpose? What would you say then about all those things? So the answer is, be patient. Be patient. You don't know what God is accomplishing. You can't see it, and you might at the end of it all, whatever that is, whatever, maybe the end of a season, maybe the end of a decade, maybe the end of life, maybe in eternity, you might get a couple of things that God was doing in that time. You might not get all the answers. So then, you're patient, but your patience is trust. It's trust that, hey, God who crafted 400 years, this little window of human history to bring about the gospel, he also crafted the 400 years before that, and the years before that, and before that, going all the way back to the crafting of the universe at creation. Not only did he craft all that, he told you how all this is going to end. That's how much he crafted it. That he just like, told you how it's gonna, how, what's going to happen. So maybe, just maybe, we can be patient and we can just trust that he didn't miss what's happening in my life right now. Questions? Anything?
That's next week. <laughs> no, I'm not trying to spoil that for you. Uh, uh, we will get into the Septuagint next week because Koine Greek has a much a bigger impact than even just the New Testament, as you point out. There is going to be a translation of the Old Testament into, into Greek, which is called the Septuagint, and that actually becomes really influential over uh, the, the New Testament church. It's one of the reasons why you'll see a quotation in New Testament scripture from Paul or somebody like that, and it'll be just a little off. You ever notice that? You'll, you'll see the quotation in New Testament, and you'll go, okay, let me go back to where that was in the Old Testament. You're reading the Old Testament, and you go, those are a little bit different. They say similar things because Paul's quoting from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. So just hold off for, for next week. But your question was, were the Jews evangelical? No. So it, I say that. Let me, let me put a caveat in there. To a degree, there is a, a process of uh, basically making someone a proselyte, which you'll hear Jesus refer to. Uh, you, he tells the Pharisees, you go to make these people a proselyte, but you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are, uh, which is not a great word to the Pharisees. <laughs> but but uh, So they, they were doing this. They, they will go and try to, and make a convert into Judaism, but, but the Jewish religion is, I think the moniker has always been come and see. And, and that is uh, very much what Judaism is, is you must come and worship at the temple. That takes a hit up until the time when Rome comes in and builds the temple up to a, a, this amazing building again. While it's a feeble little structure, really all they care about is survival. Save off Alexander the Great at all costs. What do we have to do? to keep him from killing us. Um, so, th- there's so, in this period of time, they're so much under the thumb of other kingdoms that they're trying to do anything to not rock the boat. That's, and that's what we see in the New Testament. They're trying to not rock the boat, which is why, ultimately why they killed Jesus, or one of the reasons why they killed Jesus. I hope that answers your question. But yes, the Septuagint is coming next week. Any other questions? Josephus is the only, is one of the few resources we have to tell us what happened during this time. So he is a Jewish historian. He has, uh, he, he tells the truth in the way that he saw it but some of the things that he says are fanciful and we're not sure if we can really trust them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's, uh, so Josephus is, is, is good, is honestly good to read. I mean, you know, just understand what he is. He, he is the only, the best historian we have of this time period and so th- there are a host of things that he says that are certainly true and that happen, and a lot of it can be trusted. There are some things that he's telling from his own perspective and his own bent, and, you know, there, there you go. Yeah, yeah, I mean, in other words, he's just like every historian that's ever lived. Okay, so, you know, the, you just have to understand that, like, when you read anything, 
you're getting the perspective of that person too. So that's why we were always taught uh, to not just read the book, but before you read the book, read a, read a little bit about the author, where they came from, what school they're from, what that kind of thing. Learn a little bit about them because that will tell you about the conclusions that they draw. And who's funding the research? That's a, another huge point about it, yeah, is who's funding the research. It's amazing how often the conclusions uh, concur with who's funding it, right? <laughs> All right, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer and, and be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word, and we're grateful for um, the way that you have crafted history. And we're grateful for the way, not only that you've done that, but that you're bringing about its conclusion in Christ. And we, as a New Testament church community, uh, sit here tonight awaiting the day when Christ returns. And we look forward to that day. And we don't know when that day is going to be, uh, but we, we want it to be right now. Uh, but as long as Christ tarries, we pray that we would be faithful, we would be diligent, we would continue to walk in holiness, and we would uh, evangelize the world around us to tell, of them, tell them the gospel and see them come to faith. We pray that you would grant us fruit in that endeavor and that as long as we wait, that we would strive toward holy living and a, uh, a desire to be more like Christ so that when he does return, what he finds us doing is work for his name and for his glory. So we pray that you would put us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.